figuring out causal modeling and having this linear approach to cause and effect. It's completely nonsensical in terms of traditional East Asian medicine. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. The golden rule doesn't work. It's touted ability to have you connect with others in a meaningful and compassionate way. It's got a narrow bandwidth when you start to look into the dynamics of treating others as you'd like to be treated. The golden rule will enhance your ability to live within your own echo chamber. You'll end up more comfortable with like-minded people. I suspect it'll be more difficult to connect with those who are different because the way you build bridges of understanding is not to treat others as you'd like to be treated. It's to treat others as they would like to be treated. Treating others as you'd like to be treated is why there's often so much misunderstanding and so much conflict between cultures and why it can be challenging to navigate in a foreign country. It's why couples come to loggerheads over seemingly simple issues. Treating someone in the way that we'd like to be treated blinds us to the cues and requests of how the other person wants to be interacted with. You will do far better in your clinical work by keeping in mind that people want to be treated the way that they want to be treated. And it's our job to suss that out, to understand them from their own point of view. This is where empathy is critically important. Without abandoning any of your perspective or values, is it possible to inhabit a deep, uncertain, and connective place of being able to see what the other person sees and inquire into what they believe that you don't believe? And if you can, key into what it is that they want that you don't want. Treating others as they'd like to be treated doesn't mean you change your values or even agree with your patient. But in our work, it's not about finding agreement. It's about creating connection. Getting close enough so that we can understand how to be of the most service to our patients. Treating others as they'd like to be treated is hard, especially if we have opinions about another's predilections and preferences. It can get tricky. One patient will be delighted when you ask what pronouns to use with them, while others will bristle or just be confused. Some people like to be called by their first name, but others, they prefer a Mr. or Mrs. attached to that last name. Some people enjoy getting lifestyle advice. Others find helpful information generously given as invasively blaming, which means to them, it's not information generously given. You know that phrase, the customer is always right? It's not true. Often, in fact, they're indeed wrong. But what's important to remember is that most of us, most of the time in our own minds, we're right. Just look at that last argument you had with someone that you love if you don't believe me on this. The customer is always right means treat people the way they want to be treated. And there's a helpful flip side to this. There are people you're not going to work well with because you're not really capable of giving them what they want. And more experienced practitioners will tell you that not only will your practice grow much better, you'll have far more energy at the end of the day if you work with the kinds of people that you're a good fit to work with. I'm not suggesting that we only open our practices to people like us. Learning to develop your empathy so you get a glimpse into what they see that you don't see, it pays dividends in all kinds of places, and it's good to stretch ourselves. Treating people the way that we'd like to be treated fails to take into account the other person's unique viewpoint, their wants, fears, and desires. It only leaves room for connection on our common ground. But as a practitioner of medicine, 
Our job is to help others. And that's easier if you can understand your patient from their own point of view. In a moment, we're going to get into a conversation on research that will have you thinking about the research process in a whole new way. We're leaving behind the double-blind studies and dipping into nonlinear emergent chaotic systems. Lisa Taylor Swanson loved research before she fell in love with Chinese medicine. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it. 
even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. And now she gets to do both. All right, friends, it's research time. I hope that you're going to enjoy this conversation. Lisa Taylor Swanson, welcome back to Geological. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. I'm happy to have you here. You're like my favorite researcher ever. <laughs> That's an honor. Thank you. <laughs> and I mean, the thing is, I'm not that big of a research guy. I mean, I really, it's like reading it is not interesting to me. Just the ways that you have to kind of bend your mind to look at it. I, just, You know, it's just, it's not my jam for whatever reason. But when I'm talking to you, I walk away and I'm like, research, yeah, this stuff's cool. That is so good to hear. That makes my day. You know, the other day I was talking with one of my son, he's a high schooler, one of his friends, and she was saying, so now what do you do? And I explained how I've been a licensed acupuncturist, oh my goodness, almost 20 years now, and most recently finished a PhD. And so now I'm, you know, conducting research. And she said, oh, wow, I've never met an acupuncture researcher. And she said, wow, that's really neat. And I said, well, thanks. I guess I'm kind of like an academic unicorn. So I suppose that's my new title, academic unicorn. Academic unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there's not many people that are doing what you're doing. Truly. I actually started counting recently the number of acupuncturists who have completed a PhD and or the number of acupuncturists who have completed a DAOM, DAHM, there's different acronyms, who are conducting research. And happily, there's more every year, but there's there's certainly not a lot of us. Under 40 for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things for me on, I suspect why it's not my jam so much is that the way that we think about and the way that we practice Chinese medicine, it does not lend itself to your usual control, variable, you know, Petri dish, pharmaceutical model. It really doesn't because it's not like we're, we're, we're testing this point against that point. It's so much more complex and, it, and it's not about the thing. It's about the process, it seems, so often. So... I mean, how do you wrap your acupuncture mind around research? Or is there something about research that I may not know about yet that would help me to understand better how we can actually use this stuff to make sense of our clinical work and, and, and maybe help teach other people about the work that we do? Right. Well, I think there's two answers to that. So like you, Michael, when I read most research, Previously, when I was in my uh, biostatistics courses doing my doctoral studies, I wanted to stick a fork in my eye very often because it was so miserable, especially in those statistics courses, you know, figuring out causal modeling and um, having this linear approach to cause and effect. It, it, it's completely, like you say, Michael, nonsensical in terms of traditional East Asian medicine. So I would sit there thinking, well, 
all right, I have to memorize the stuff. I need to learn it. And I need to learn it well enough that I can speak cogently and not sound like an idiot. I had to be able to study those statistical tests and theory and whatnot, again, to be able to talk shop. It's the modern vernacular. Right. You've got to be able to talk shop, right? If you can't talk shop, nobody will take you seriously. Truly. Truly. You've got to Mm -hmm. at least be able to show, hey, I'm swimming in the pool. Watch this. Right. I right. can hold my breath and, and do some backstroke. Backstroke. Not bad. Yeah. Okay. Right. Right. Yeah, I'm one of you. Right. 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 And then I always felt like um like a secret alter ego, you know, by day she's Lois Lane, by night she's Wonder Woman. Well, that was Superman, but you know, whatever. So I'd have like how I would pass, how I could get along in this world. And then what I really wanted to learn about and happily I've been able to do some of is learning about complexity and nonlinear models and how do we study complex phenomena and complex change over time. And that's what really makes sense to me as a clinician. And I think even for outside the context of acupuncture research for other health sciences, I really think that's where the science is going to a place where we can study complexity, whether that's with big data or whether that's with statistical analyses that take into account the possibility of a nonlinear equation. I know it's getting kind of jargon heavy. Well, it's a little jargon heavy, but don't worry because we're going to dig into what that actually means here in just a moment. Awesome. Awesome. So again, I think there were those two levels for me. One, the this doesn't make any sense in terms of standard RCT design, et cetera. And knowing that I, as an individual researcher, and we as a profession of clinical researchers studying acupuncture and East Asian medicine have to, again, be able to understand that model to be able to move outside the model, to like get outside that black box. I mean, that makes so much sense. It, it's sort of like with physics, you've got to know your basic Newtonian physics, and then you can go do quantum. I don't know if you get to do quantum without first understanding Newtonian. You need to, you need to be able to get those linear relationships down I guess it's like with Chinese medicine, too. You need to know where the channels are, and then you can start really mixing some stuff up. Right, right. That's exactly it, I think, Michael, is having those foundational basics, and then you can, you know, go whatever the next step is, whether that's clinically with additional training or research in terms of other designs of studies and other analyses. And I think also most often... Once I've conducted my first randomized control trial, which I will do, I'll have the data that will be analyzed in the standard fashion, and that'll be the report of my primary findings. But then I'll have what I really want to do, which will be sufficiently collect, designed and collected data that I can run what I really want to run. And then those will be additional papers. Can you do those simultaneously? Or do you have to do the linear one first and then come back and do the, uh, the more complex one later, the nonlinear later? Uh, well, simultaneously in terms of data collection and then one after the other, just in terms of sanity and writing one paper at a time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I love the idea. Non-linear research. I'm, I'm already interested. I, I think it's just because non-linear is already kind of a juicy thing, right? <laughs> yeah. What can non-linear research tell us about phenomena like acupuncture that linear research can't? Right. That's a great question. So at the first moment I think about that, I I step into my clinical mind and my clinical body. And what I think about is what we all, I'm sure, see clinically is that sometimes people get much worse 
and then they get way better. So it's not like this linear, oh, for every day passing, they had one unit of improvement. Like that is ridiculous. That's yeah, not. It's not a straight line up and to the right. Totally. Yeah. Never. Never. If anything, it's, you know, like looping back and, you know, whatever. At the very least, that's for sure what I can say concretely. I know 100% happens clinically. And what's really interesting, uh, some colleagues of mine in psychology have already studied in terms of providing therapy for an individual. And I think it's been done in terms of couples therapy too. That when, in, we'll just talk about the individual, say that person, they come into therapy, they're wanting counseling, they're having depression, anxiety, what have you. You could describe that as they're in this stuck, stable state. They're not feeling good. It's stuck. You know how stuck, stable state. I think of it as, as homeostasis, but it's not ideal homeostasis. Right. It is dysfunctional homeostasis. Well, it, but stuck, stable is a great way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. Stuck, stable. Stuck, stable. And so there's this stuck, stable place. And then with, uh, in that case of the intervention being counseling, slowly that stuck, stable space kind of on hinges and sometimes a lot. So sometimes they'll crash. And that's when it feels like shit is falling apart. Totally, totally. But the good news is when that stable stuck space really destabilizes as a very different configuration, that is the very place from which a new stable, hopefully better and more healthy stable state can reorganize. So that a time when the patient has a very difficult, difficult worsening. So in that case, you know, more depression, more anxiety, more whatever. Often with acupuncture, we see patients with that, of course, and also physical pain and whatever else is going on, diarrhea, <laughs> you leave it to the whole system, everything's going wrong. So when it more completely, more strongly, you could say destabilizes, then again, there's that capacity for a new stable state to really reconfigure the whole system in a different way. That makes tremendous sense to me. When I lived in Taiwan and I was studying Chinese, I would have this experience. It drove me nuts. The first couple times it happened, I thought I was losing my mind because I'd be studying, studying, studying. I could kind of get around, you know, I'd like order food and I could, you know, I could like get around. And then I'd have this moment. It wasn't just a moment. It would like last, it would start and then it would go for about a week where things I could say the previous week, nobody understood what I was saying. People would speak to me that, and I, it's like a week ago, I could understand them. Now I totally cannot understand them. And it would drive me nuts. It's like, I am going backwards. In the beginning, I felt like giving up. It's like, I can't do this. I can't learn this stuff. You know, I'm getting worse. And after five to seven days, generally speaking, of stuff just falling apart, it would suddenly snap to grid. And I could understand things that previously I had no way of understanding. I could speak. My tones were dead on. People could understand me that couldn't understand me previously. And then I'd be on this plateau for a while, keep studying, keep studying, keep studying, work it, work it, work it. At a certain point, it would happen again. It would come apart. After a period of time, it would come back together. And after this happened a few times, I started to notice, oh, this is how this works because it seemed to me at a certain level of stuck stable, a certain level of, of efficiency or a certain level of competence, the whole thing works. But if you want that to be bigger, it will not fit in that frame. Frame must come apart. Mm -hmm. That's a great way of explaining it. 
that makes sense to me completely. I mean, that was that was just my own experience with language acquisition. I've seen this with patients on occasion where things will really get worse. So this is always a question for me. Did I mistreat them or is something else happening? Is this just a mistreatment? Did you get worse and then you went back to your usual level of stuck stable? Or do you go to a level that's completely, are you a different person afterwards? And on occasion, I'll see that. I agree with you in that moment as a clinician trying to figure out exactly that. Was my differential diagnosis off or do I need to be patient and see how the next few weeks go? And that's tough. And I saw that also even just, it's still complex, but maybe less intricate, just thinking strictly of physical pain. You know, of course, so many people come in for acupuncture in particular for back pain, neck pain, pick a pain, and then, you know, it would get a little worse or a lot worse. And then after a couple more treatments become much better. That I always felt like I had more clinical confidence in trusting that process, less so when, you know, it was this whole person <laughs> falling apart, you know, their their marriage is a mess, their job is a mess, they're a mess, they can't sleep, you know, like that whole picture of just really being in, in a bad way. That's harder to stay with my diagnosis, especially with herbs. Yeah, I agree with you clinically. Mm -hmm. So what does complexity theory, as you've been working with it, have to say about this kind of phenomenon? Oh, a lot. There's there's a mountain of jargon. Most of it I, I don't think we want to wade through. But so pulling from math and physics, actually, is where this Ooh, all... Oh, two of my favorites. I know, right? Where you just were mentioning. That's really moved forward into health sciences and to the social sciences. My favorite theoretical framework is complex adaptive systems theory. And so it's that the phenomena we're looking at are complex. The best example I can give outside of East Asian medicine is with respect to frogs. So recently frogs are mutating in really awful ways. And if a scientist were to only look at the frog and dissect the poor little thing or whatever, figure out why are they being born with like too many legs or one few eyes. I mean, it's really awful. They're being greatly disfigured. But if you just look at the frog alone, you're not going to figure out what's going on. But scientists, of course, often being biologists or ecologists, look at the whole ecology. So long story made very short, it turns out that humans were taking a lot of hormones, especially women. And some of that hormone will go into the water system because we urinate out these hormones. So the water gets polluted, the frogs are mutating. So that's how we can understand it. So this complex phenomenon can only be understood by looking at the whole picture. It's the opposite, really, of reductionism, where you would, again, just look at the frog, what's happening, uh, maybe look at the water, what's happening, but without looking at the, the humans, the water, the frogs, the transportation of water, you know, the precipitation of water, whatever the complexity grows as you think about a topic more so. And that really is the way that you can understand that phenomenon is by complexity. The adaptive part is that a system, like we were talking about with the person, is adapting over time to um, perturbations. So, acupuncture, herbal medicine, gua sha twina, the clinical interaction, I would say those are all ways we perturb, <laughs> not in the irritating kind of use of that word. We're, we're poking the system. Totally poking we're the system. Poking the system. Literally with needles, funny. So you perturb the system and it adapts. The person, and the person I would think of as this biopsychosocial 
being, not just their physical tissues. That's, of course, important what's happening physiologically. But of course, the whole person we know is affected by this medical intervention we're delivering. And it's complex adaptive systems. We've talked about systems in theory, this theoretical framework to explain it all. But the nice thing about a theory is it gives you some, it's almost like, it's not exactly fence posts because fences are pretty darn linear. Gives you some maybe like tent poles because you could have a cool circular tent or whatever shape of tent, but some some structure at the very least we could say by which to organize your thinking, and you can predict and also model this change uh, using that theoretical framework and then associated mathematical modeling. The metaphor I get, I start hearing you talk about mathematical models and things of that nature, and and already I start to go off the rails a little bit, but. I want to bring this back down to the practical. So for us as acupuncturists, how does this make a difference in how we might approach doing research or reading research or thinking about maybe even getting into doing research? So one of the things that I was first inspired by, I think it was Dr. Iris Bell. She's at the University of Arizona. I haven't been in touch with her for several years. She may be retired at this point, but she's a psychiatrist and has done some amazing work regarding homeopathy. And she has talked uh, and written in her papers regarding nonlinear effects. So for example, as a clinician, of course, patients come in, they want their symptoms fixed, but very often what happens is when they're feeling better, whatever those symptoms are, then they feel more free and more energetic. And I had many patients over the years come back and say, Lisa, I quit my job that I've hated for 20 years. I feel so great. I am going to go follow my dreams or, you know, what have you. These, these nonlinear, unanticipated outcomes, you could say. At the very least, what I'm excited to do is allow for measurement of as much as we can anticipate of those unanticipated outcomes. So, of course, say uh, we're going to design a trial of acupuncture for low back pain. That's been done 100 times. But if we allow um, use, for example, of the MIMOP, it's this wonderful questionnaire developed by Charlotte Patterson in the UK, where patients, participants, identify, it's measure your own outcomes, something protocol, my mop. So the patients can say, oh, well, what's important to me actually is uh, my sleep quality or my marriage quality or my, my ability to walk my dog or to get on the ground and play with my grandkids or whatever thing they identify. So I think having some patient-centered outcomes is a really important way to go. And then also to collect in a, in a way that's as minimally burdensome as possible. We don't really want to send every questionnaire to the participants, but to try to capture as much as we can, not only what you think is going to change, the back pain gets better and the sleep gets better and the mood gets better, but unanticipated outcomes too, because I think that's when we're going to get some research that might really be meaningful to clinical practice too, and to demonstrate to funders uh, yeah, actually, it's not a single channel of efficacy that we're working with here. It is a whole person change. It's really revolution is what is happening in our clinical practices. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. 
You'll be familiar with Dumai, the Governor Channel or the Sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Qi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. Not a single channel. This so much touches on what got me interested in acupuncture in the first place, which is that I went in for a problem, like everybody does. That problem eventually did change, but there were other things that changed before it. And that's what got my attention. It's like, wow, I didn't know I had a problem with my digestion until... I suddenly was having great digestion. I didn't know I was such an irritable jerk until I stopped being less irritable and jerky. Those are the things that really got my attention. And then, of course, we hear the stories from our patients. Yeah, they came in for back pain, knee pain. I mean, what, whatever it is. And then their marriages change. The relationship with their kids change. They decide they're not going to do this job anymore. I mean, there's all these other things in the background. They would never come in and say, the problem is this job. The problem is, I don't like how I am with my wife. They don't say that. They, won't, they don't come to us for that. I mean, if you've been in practice for any length of time, you've heard patients talk about these kinds of changes. And so it's super interesting to me that you are looking at ways from the research side of being able to look not just at, did your back pain go from an eight to a four? And we can say it's efficacy to maybe how life-changing acupuncture can be. I mean, transformative. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think that Obviously, to, it's not a game, but you know, to play the game of funding and all of that, we have to write. No, it's a game, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And there's really good news. So some of your listeners may have been in the room with me at the Society for Acupuncture Research in Burlington over the summer when NCCIH's director, Dr. Helene Langevin, announced that she's very excited about and NCCIH in general is supportive of whole systems research. I about fell out of my chair, Michael. It's all I've thought about for 20 years. I learned about this whole system stuff in psychology as an undergrad, it was that theoretical framework that really forced me, because I loved it, forced me to study this medicine. I was going to go to Western medical school and do all that stuff, but it didn't make any sense to me. This medicine made sense. And so again, that's why I'm here. So fast forward over the 20 years of all this reductionistic science that I just can't stand to read like all of you or listeners and, and yourself, Michael. Fast forward now to director of NCCIH says, yes, we are going to put some calls out in the future to fund whole systems research. The day has come. They've really come around. Is there anything in particular that she was talking about? Or did she go into more detail about why she thinks that will be useful? 
as a as a model and as an approach? Well, I certainly didn't take notes, and I don't want to misquote or misstate or anything like that. But my general sense, um, and this was at a, a delightful evening gala dinner, was that she and and uh, program officers at NCCIH really acknowledge that whole systems research uh, frameworks are much more congruent with traditionally staged medicine and other traditional medicines. And I think it's that knowledge of, okay, we've been in the West and obviously much longer in the East conducting research on acupuncture and East Asian medicine and just hitting our heads up against the wall, um, trying to fit, you know, this delightful sphere into a very reductionistic square. So I think it's that acknowledgement for sure. Well, something that comes to mind for me as we're having this conversation is what if they took that model and applied it to your basic straight on conventional medicine research where, you know, we look at the controls and go, oh, yeah, this seems to work pretty well for helping us understand. But what if they started using that model? I wonder what else they might find. Absolutely. Unanticipated outcomes that I was having a conversation with um, Lisa Conboy, one of my favorite researchers. She's at Harvard and at NISA. So in standard statistics, you have this bell curve. And what you want to look at is the, the what you think is going to be the highest distribution in that center of the curve. That's what matters, quote unquote. Yeah, I, so, I like to think of that as the herd. Oh, yeah, I like that. And then, you know, the tails of that curve or the the outliers, will we disregard the outliers? Well, what if we actually included the outliers? What if the outliers could be rich bits of information? I think that's one way that we might actually still conduct pretty standard research, but not just disallow those outliers. But you might find, oh, here's some people who respond differently to this intervention. Well, let's follow up on that. That'd be one way I, I wonder. I think about that bell curve too. I think about it a lot because the people that I see in my practice, they generally are not from the top of the bell curve. Totally. They they are the people, you go out two standard deviations, conventional medicine's pretty good at that, at that top of the bell curve, generally speaking. But anyone that's more than two standard deviations off the top of that bell curve, they've either not been helped or often they've been harmed. Or they just fall through the system because no one can even get a hold of what they're doing. Chinese medicine sees people like this. I mean, partly because they've slipped through that other system, but I think also because we're not looking for the standard. We there is no standard. The standard, the individual is the standard. Yes, everyone is an N of one study. Everyone's an N of one study, mm-hmm. and. Those people that are out there on on the edges of the bell curve, they often have some really interesting things going on. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, I was talking with, um, uh, let's see, this woman who's a student of Dr. Conboy's, uh, she's a student at NISA, Paige Pendavaras, and she's really interested in autoimmune disease and has noticed from the literature that a lot of autoimmune diseases tend to co-occur. And she's found one physician I think they're in Boston, who concurs with her findings and is starting to 
advocate and also conduct his own research, I believe, looking at patients who have, you know, autoimmune disease A, well, do they have B, C, D, E, E, F, G, you know, because so many of them do co-occur. So it was her observations as an acupuncture clinician in training, his observations as a physician, I'm not sure which specialty, but treating autoimmune disease, where they've each noticed, oh, these outliers, people with autoimmune disease often have co-occurring autoimmune diseases. Uh, It's one example, I think, of how we can talk shop in a way that really can be meaningful for those people who, of course, in their own life, they're not an outlier. (laughs) They're an inlier. There's such a word. You know, it matters most to them. But I do think that we can make sense of those patterns when when they're actually looked at of people who are are not at the top of the bell curve. Mm -hmm. I mean, so long, it seems that our medicine, our society really has looked at, well, what's the greatest good for the greatest number? And if you fall in with that, great. And if you don't, too bad for you. Too bad for you. (laughs) It's miserable. And you know what's interesting too, Michael, is thinking of the top of the bell curve or the center of the bell curve. Chronic illness obviously is such a massive problem in modern life that is so poorly treated by biomedicine, usually so well treated by Chinese and East Asian medicine. I mean, I think about how frequent that is, and yet why are they doing such a rubbish job over the whole biomedically? It's a good question. Have you got thoughts on that? I think it takes us back to complexity, where uh, say I'm the standard middle-aged female. So I might have metabolic syndrome and I might be inching towards type 2 diabetes and I might not sleep well and I might have hot flashes and I might have anxiety and I might have pain. I might have uh, high cholesterol. I might have high blood pressure. So say I've got eight different diagnoses. And of course, I go to my gynecologist to talk about my hot flashes, my primary care to send me out to all the other providers to look at cardiology, to look at endocrinology, to look at a diabetes and meet with a diabetes specialist. And so each person, of course, is treating their their piece of me. But I think a lot of the challenges are when those medications interact with one another, at the very least, it's a, a greater burden on that person to take all those medications and then a side effect profiles. And I think in the middle of it, the people that I've treated in my practice with that kind of a presentation tend to just not have improvement because one, there's a lot of burden taking all those pills and to go to all those different providers. But I think also just not having, again, uh, one provider that's looking at the whole person and can say, oh, well, this medication is going to counteract with that medication. And this medication is going to cause insomnia, which you already had. So we better choose a different one, you know, so on and so forth. Spot on. I have found, especially with people that take four or more medications. And some people come in with a whole laundry list of them. Yes. That sometimes I'll come in with some kind of issue. And my first question is, is this actually a problem you have? Or is this one of the side effects of a medication? Or is there some sort of cross interaction? Yeah. Because trying to get any traction while that stuff is in place is very, very difficult. Yeah. You know, I think the other reason, and not I'm not trying to critique our colleagues in biomedicine, they do great things and save lives every day, but but of course but they we do, do not look at the interaction of drugs very well. No, not very well. And I think another part of the problem is that healthcare providers have what is it, like a six-minute consult to try to get to the bottom of whatever the patients come in to talk about. And the lack of time 
to not get to know their patients. You know, they might be, say, inching with metabolic syndrome because because they have a devastating, you know, problem in their family and there's not time to make proper food and they're stressed out or whatever. You know, like the the um, symptoms could be completely social in their, their root, basically. So, you know, not really being able to have the time to talk with patients and get to the bottom of what's actually causing these problems, if there's a known cause or precipitating factor, I think is another key problem. And I think that also results, this is a different topic, but in provider burnout, it's no fun having to see patients on the six minutes and just give a script and off they go. Um, I think that's another side effect of, of the miserable medical system these days. Yeah. I want to shift this just a little bit because I love the terms complexity and nonlinear and you know all that cool stuff. It occurs to me that really at the beginning of the 20th century, the early 1900s, physics was coming out with some crazy stuff. And that whole linear model of reality was unraveling like a cheap sweater. And physics is like, you know, the science of sciences, right? It's like there's no more sciencey science than physics. And so in physics, this is well over 100 years ago now. You have people saying things like, well, we can look at a system, but if you look at it, you change it. We're not talking about woo-woo new age people. Totally. We're talking about serious physicists. And I don't really want to go down the rabbit hole of, oh, quantum physics, it's all a quantum universe, but you know, let's ionize it and everything's going to be great, beautiful, <laughs> I'm not, yeah. I, I don't want to go down that pathway. At the same time there was a shift in thinking in physics that started people looking at complexity, that started looking at things very nonlinear, looking at things in terms of whole systems. That today is just a given if you're doing physics. And yet it seems to me, and now you're closer to the conventional medical system than I am, but it seems to me not much of that has percolated down into medicine or into ways of researching and looking at medicinal types of interventions. I definitely agree. Why is that? I don't know. I will ponder that because we, like this proverbial we, this the medical health sciences institutes of the world are so stuck in entrenched ways of knowing, being, and doing. So knowing reductionism, we are reductionistic and doing, conducting reductionistic uh, science. It's just not, the needle hasn't moved. Except that it's, you know, shifting. Like I was mentioning in terms of NCCIH, hopefully soon we'll have these um, calls to look at whole systems research and trying to look at this whole person phenomenon and systems of whole medicine, which will be revolutionary because, of course, most research these days is on acupuncture, a single thing given to a person, not what we do in practice, most of us, in terms of deliver acupuncture in this environment of interpersonal communication often with some cupping and some moxibustion, send them home with herbal medicine. The, if you're a deeply trained herbalist, then of course that formula uh, will change over time, the script. So it's an inherently complex intervention, a world away from 
clinical trials of Zoloft for depression, right? Single pill, same thing goes to everybody. It's antithema to that. So I think we're within the health sciences, at least within, I can only speak within East Asian medicine. I think someday I'll be able to study East Asian medicine and not only acupuncture, for example. And, and what do you mean when you're saying East Asian medicine? as opposed to just acupuncture? I don't even know what to call it. I mean, whether it's Chinese medicine, but then I was trained in meridian therapy that's Japanese, Korean hand acupuncture. So I, I try to be inclusive in my verbiage. Usually I remember the word traditional, traditional East Asian medicine, trying to think of the whole uh, kit and caboodle. Right. Well, I like what you just said here about it's it's not just acupuncture. It's not just this you know needle going into flesh in a you know very sterile environment where there's not really interaction between people. You're talking about acupuncture plus interpersonal communication. Mm-hmm. That gets so left out of conventional research because that's going to skew things. They do their best to take as much of that out as possible. You're talking about putting it in and seeing what happens. Mm-hmm. No, I totally agree that the vernacular is like controlling for those variables. Well, what's the point of controlling everything down to the point where it's so abstract from clinical reality? And what are we even studying? So if you control for interpersonal interaction, um, for other variables as well, again, the inherent reality of clinical practices, lots and lots of variables. So how do we capture this rich environment that traditional East Asian medicine brings to the table in terms of treating people, how do you capture that kind of information so that you can do this complexity work that you're doing? Right. Well, what's nice and also really exciting is nowadays uh, tech, I think, can really help us a lot. So it's not, again, um, overly burdensome to to participants and potentially even to providers. So I discovered recently this cool little device called a BioStamp. It's the size of a Band-Aid and you wear it and it collects so much information in real time. It collects heart rate variability, your respiration, your oxygen saturation rate, your gait. So your number of steps, how big your gait is, you can see changes in, say, if it's someone with, um, you know, back pain or something, and they're not able to walk well or sciatica, and then later how their gait changes, this single little Band-Aid thing collects all of that, plus sleep actigraphy. So you can easily have someone wear a Band-Aid for a bunch of days during a trial. There's a lot of research on concordance between patients and providers, when the patient feels like the provider is listening to them and the provider feels like the patient was listening to them as well, there's a high concordance. There've been research studies looking at, I don't remember what specifically was measured, probably heart rate variability. And when there was concordance between the patient and provider, that's associated with better outcomes for the patient. So have the patient wear the Band-Aid thing, have the provider wear the Band-Aid thing, and that would be an easy way to collect a massive amount of data. And then, of course, some standard scales probably will always be needed in terms of pain ratings, the amount of disability or lack of disability due to the pain or other symptoms. There's a ton of research that can be easily collected with smartphones. One thing that's popular now is EMA, Ecological Momentary Analysis. So you just um, randomly send a few questions 
and get some real-time information from participants. And you could randomly send an open-ended question. What's better for you today? What isn't going so well? What are you noticing? What's novel? What's coming up that you haven't seen before? And that, that we've been talking about, that novel aspect is the emergence of information in a system. That is a lot to unpack right there, the emergence of information in a system. Because I think that is a way to describe what we've been talking about, unintended consequences or unanticipated improvements or outcomes. There's this jargon of information that emerges in a complex system. And so it's it's not like A plus B plus C, patient plus provider plus needle. It's in between all of that, something emerges, this this new either outcome or new understanding or new lack of a symptom, um, new resolution. And that, I think, gets to an exciting part of this complex picture we're talking about. Well, and I think it, from the patient's point of view, it might help them to better, I mean, if patients could get their, wrap their brains around this and it's not that we have to school them. I'm just wondering if eventually this will just become part of the culture as as this kind of thing unfolds. Because sometimes I have patients get off the table and they're very surprised because the pain that they came in with is actually not there. I mean, it's actually not there. And sometimes they're very disbelieving and they're like, is it possible that this could really be gone? Their eyes are all wide and, and, you know, it's like, are you trying to trick me, Michael Max? (laughs) Yeah. And then they'll say things like, is this just in my head? (laughs) Because they, like, I think all of us, because we're usually looking for that one linear golden bullet that takes care of things. It's like, did this thing do it? How could this one needle do something like that? And, and and my suspicion is their disbelief is arising because it's partly the needle, it's partly the connection between the two of us, and who knows what else. Your intention. I mean, there's intention, their intention. I mean, who knows? Because we're talking about a complex system here. and But they want to know what was that one thing that changed it? And it seems like we need to grow beyond this idea that there's one thing that's going to change something. It's not one thing. It's this conglomeration mm-hmm. of things. Multiple perturbations to that system. Multiple perturbations to the system. I like that. Mm-hmm. And multiple, not pieces, but you know, there's multiple manifestations, emergence, something of information. You know, there's this novel information that emerges. So for that patient, I've seen that so many times, Michael, where patients get off the table, they feel so much better. One, I agree with you, they want to know, well, what actually did that? And so I'll explain. I'll use often a metaphor of a symphony. So acupuncture, we know in terms of biomedicine and biomedical basic science, your serotonin was increased, your dopamine was the reuptake increased, um, your connective tissue, this changed, your immune system, that hormones, this brain changes in terms of uh, connectivity and um, 
rate of activation, I guess you could say. I, I try to make it useful. But basically, of course, the body, all of symphony is playing simultaneously. And maybe the song was a little bit, you know, all in the wrong um, key or something. So acupuncture and the interaction and herbs and whatever the interaction has consisted of can help get that symphony like back in tune the whole thing changes so if i explain it isn't a singular agent it wasn't one needle in your back that did something it was this whole interaction that changed this whole symphony inside of you um, that sometimes helps patients think about it in a little bit different way in recent years this om acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following in the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of chi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI. 2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. And I think it's probably helpful for us as acupuncturists as well, because how often, I'm raising my hand here, by the way, I'm thinking, what's that one point that's going to change this? Truly. Yeah. I do. I mean, there's the part of me that's looking at, oh yeah, I'm dealing with multiple perturbations to the system. Yeah. There's a part of me that is looking at the whole and wanting to to interact as much as I can with the whole. But there's that other part of me that's going, what's the point? Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. we are adult children of the culture in which we are raised, you know, <laughs> we still have that enculturation that's really hard to shake. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember in acupuncture, well, East Asian medicine school, whatever, in school studying this medicine and just being completely befuddled by the magnitude of stuff I had to memorize and and trying to figure out from case studies what the differential diagnosis, usually diagnoses would be. You know, it's so hard to stay in that place of pattern recognition and making sense of these complex presentations. And it's easy. We all do that. I agree to fall into the what what is the singular fix or what is the do I use Kiko Matsumoto approach or do I use uh, five element or, you know, like what's going to be the, the, the most efficient way? We're always trying to figure that out. For me, over the years, I feel like it's been a lot like learning a language. It's in some ways, it's learning to rename the world. It's a way of looking and seeing process where before I simply saw structure. Oh, that's good. I mean, for me, looking at like the five phases, I mean, I'm in the beginning, it's like, oh, it's so poetic. It's so beautiful. And every now and then I get a glimpse. It's like, it's not that it's poetic or beautiful. This is how stuff actually unfolds. This is just 
I mean, there's a beauty to it, but beyond the beauty, sometimes it's like, oh yeah, when this person behaves like that with this other person who's like this, you get this kind of interaction. It's like, oh yeah, well, there you go. There is the wood beating up on the earth. Right. You can watch it in relationships. Right. You know, the other day I, I was at the grocery store and there's two lines and I'm and I'm looking at the people on each line. I go, oh, that one over there, she's a liver excess. She is out of it. It's going to take forever. Do I get in the line with the liver excess woman who's <laughs> like out of it? And the very polite triple burner excess woman behind her who's who's just being nice? Or do I get in the line with the two spleen excess people that are a little dull, but they might be faster? <laughs> and it, right. It, but the odd thing for me is it wasn't like, oh, look, I can take my Chinese medicine eyes and look at it. It was more like, oh, yeah, no, I'm going for that line because these spleen excess people, it's going to go better for me. Mm-hmm. And also you in that equation, how you might interact, either have chit chat with them or not, or push your things up on the conveyor belt. You know, your interaction with those two people would matter, too, in your constitution. Yes. Well, sometimes I find it best to just keep my mouth shut. And <laughs> just down there. <laughs> notice my breath going into my belly and just keep my mouth shut. <laughs> truly, truly, truly. But I agree with you in terms of the flexible frameworks with which we view phenomena, whether at the grocery or in the clinic, most often, of course, in the clinic. But, uh, but it shows up everywhere. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I just want to switch this again for a moment. Sure. Can you tell us about any interesting research that you're doing? Any oh. projects that you can talk about? Or is, or, or is this all highly classified? And, highly uh, classified. Highly well, classified. Yeah. Some parts are a little bit classified. And I just want to keep under wraps while I'm figuring it out. But, well, I think one study that I'm really, really excited about is a study of acupuncture for a chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy. So a lot of individuals, when they receive chemotherapy, end up with peripheral neuropathy. And it's miserable, of course. In clinic, we've all treated neuropathy due to various etiologies, very often due to diabetes. Quite often with this etiology, I see it often. Do you see it often? Yes. Yeah. And of course, people are at greater risk for falls, and then they're at risk for breaking something. It's it's really miserable in and of itself, but there's also a greater risk associated with having peripheral neuropathy, especially in the feet. So there have been a few um, small studies. This is another small study. It's a pilot with, uh, we'll recruit 20 individuals. Um, What I'm really excited about is we have a terrific collaborator who's a neuroradiologist, and he will scan participants pre-post a series of 10 acupuncture uh, treatments with functional MRI. So we're going to look at pain processing regions of the brain and see if the functional connectivity improves after that series of acupuncture. And then the other part that I'm interested in is this jargon-heavy term called interoception. So interoception is how we feel our body. So I feel my body reclining in this chair. I feel the headset on my ears. I feel kind of warm. I'm a little bit hungry. And I'm happy to be talking with my longtime friend. So I feel kind of happy. So it's not only the physiologic experience of our body, but also the emotional aspect. So all of that is under the umbrella 
umbrella term of interoception. That can be contrasted with exteroception. So I see here, smell the exterior world. Okay, so it's, so it's how you understand your internal sense of being. Yeah. Absolutely. So there's uh, some scales, there's some objective measures that are used to study interceptive awareness. And that's a little bit broader term that that fully encompasses that emotional part of interception. So other trials of interventions, one, uh, some really beautiful work by a friend of mine, Cynthia Price up in Washington. She's developed a massage therapy intervention that has a lot of interaction and coaching basically by the massage therapist to mindfully attend to the body. Um, So she's looking at her intervention, MABT, in the context of uh, people who are taking opioids. It helps people who are taking opioids because it helps them be more healthy or balanced in their interceptive awareness. Mindfulness interventions are being studied with respect to interceptive awareness or interoception. Acupuncture hasn't yet, so that's where I'm staking my net. I think that acupuncture and the whole kit and caboodle we've been talking about, the whole interaction helps people be there in their bodies, be with sensation, and catastrophize less, have less anxiety, rate it, uh, whatever it is, pain, hot flash, you name it, as less bothersome and less interfering, less severe. So this will be basically a groundbreaking study on the topic. I don't know if we'll find anything, but some other pilot data I'm collecting just with a few 24 participants, we do see pre-post one acupuncture session uh, improvements in interceptive awareness. I have a hard time believing that someone hasn't already looked into that because as you just described it to me, I'm thinking acupuncture is a perfect place to study that because the way that people shift the relationship with how they are with themselves is so profound. Mm -hmm. And even the way patients talk about Uh, Like say when I would go back to take the needles out and they would say, oh, wow. Well, while I was on the table, I felt like I was floating or rotating, but I knew I wasn't. Or I had, you know, I knew I wasn't sleeping, but I just saw all these colors or, you know, periodic times I would just feel energy. You know, we don't know what to call it, call it energy or chi, of course, moving in the body. I just felt my body in a way I've never felt it before. Um, All of those reports um, that I heard over the years really make sense to me in this context of interceptive awareness. Absolutely. Well, and how many times, I'm sure you've heard this, y'all out there listening, I'm sure you've heard this too if you treated patients. You do a treatment and the patient goes, I feel like myself again. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And there's no way we can quantify that. So this is where our complex models are really, really helpful. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think gives credence to qualitative inquiry as well. So what I observed over the years, I mentioned patients saying how they felt like they were rotating or saw colors or felt their body in a different way. Or as you noted, I feel like myself again. I think it's important to to launch some, some qualitative inquiry into these topics and ask people, what is it you feel during acupuncture? What do you feel immediately after? What do you often feel or if it's closer in time to when they just received a treatment, what did you feel this last week since you had acupuncture? Because getting that rich level of data can really inform later 
um, scale development so we can develop questionnaires, develop other designs of research based on, you know, boots on the ground, qualitative inquiry. It's so exciting to hear you talk about this stuff. Uh, the piece that that gets me kind of fired up is so many of the parts that get left out of traditional medical research, you're looking to bring in and include. Mm-hmm. Truly. And, you know, I, I, I still feel like there's this two-part approach that I'm taking. And I've seen other more senior faculty do the same thing. So I think it's cogent. But again, I, I know I have to publish some of the standard stuff. And that'll pass muster. And then, you know, the secret agenda, pass what I really, or publish what I really care about. <laughs> well, I mean, in the world of research, I suspect it's like so many places, you kind of have to like get some street cred. It's like, you got to show that you can do, it's like, you got to prove you can really play your scales. Mm-hmm. And now we'll listen to your music. Exactly. That's a really good metaphor. I'm going to remember that when I'm writing and rewriting and rejection after rejection and rewriting and rewriting and, you know, practicing my scales in those contexts that eventually I'll get to play some music. Yeah. Well, you've been at it for a while now. You've got this position where you, you, uh, you get to have a shot at it. Truly, truly. You're, You're in a position where it's possible so for folks that might be interested in doing some research, I know we talked about this before in another conversation we had a while back, but uh, you know, I think it's I think it's worth repeating. For folks that are in a doctoral program and and research is of interest to them, if they want to get into this nonlinear, complex, super cool data put a Band-Aid on and capture like, you know, more information than anyone's ever had about anybody at any moment in time kind of right. world, <laughs> how, how would they dip into that? And where right. can I get one of these Band-Aid things? Right. Uh, Biostamp. I can give Biostamp. you the info. Yeah. MC10 is the company. I think they're based in Boston. And um, yeah, I think it's really interesting. I'd like to order one. And um, I, I wrote it into a grant. So if it gets funded, there will be. But at any rate, so a couple things in terms of getting involved in research. I think I'm still a bit of an odd bird, I think, or person or unicorn or whatever. <laughs> I think if people call up their local researcher, they probably aren't talking about this kind of stuff. They might be. Um, so just note that for all of your listeners. Okay, so, um, so you are like three or four standard deviations from the top of the bell curve. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I guess that's why I value outliers being one. I know that not all should be shunned. And in all seriousness, I think getting involved is essential for clinicians because we all know so much research over the years has been designed in a way that just has failed to show the the power of this medicine to state it sort of bluntly and those kinds of trials i think drive us all nuts so so trying to find research that's currently being conducted in a way that makes sense to uh, acupuncture clinicians i think the first thing would be to reach out to local individuals collecting uh, data and seeing if they can lend a hand. Most labs start out with bailing wire and, and not a lot of funding and just kind of scrapping it together. So somebody who wants to donate some time, I can't imagine a, a researcher saying, no, thank you. 
could really go a long ways. And then it may take a while to see, you know, oh, this is a good fit or no, this is really a research lab where they're doing the same old stuff that, that I really can't stand. And in that case, then they should call me and maybe I can connect them with somebody that I know or they can participate in my lab in some way remotely. The other way is to find a mentor who conducts research and then to collect your own data in your own clinic. And it could be um, chart data. It could be scale data. I mean, it depends on what needs to be done. You're definitely going to need consent. And so you'll, you'll need someone who's at an institution where they can have their IRB internal review board review everything, make sure it's all done properly. And then you can, yeah, collect data and work with somebody. But it takes time and energy and without funding that often kind of peters out. So volunteering might be a good start. Yeah. Well, it sounds like if you're interested in research, it's not a semester long thing. It's probably not a year long thing. You're looking at multiple years. Absolutely. I mean, it's 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 a long horizon on this. Oh, very much so. And if if an individual is really interested in conducting research, my very strong advice, I will not mince words, is go get a PhD. Definitely without question. We have fabulous doctoral programs in the U.S. at our various acupuncture schools, but they're clinical doctorates. They're not research doctorates. And I think that's a significant area of concern and confusion. And here at Utah, I'm in the College of Nursing, and there's the same confusion among some of our students and among the nursing professionals um, where some individuals wonder about a DNP, a doctorate of nursing practice, and then going out and conducting research and much like the DAOM, the DNP is a clinical doctorate. They conduct a capstone just like DAOM students, but it's, again, it's not research. It's usually quality improvement and that kind of thing. So you got to know how to play scales is what you're saying. Oh yeah. And you've got to have a PhD. And also, I mean, I have a good number of colleagues who are D, hold a DAOM and they are conducting research. They are leading research, but they've gone on and done other certificates or learned, you know, through mentoring. So you can do it with a DAOM, but I would not advise it. And also to reach out to folks who have the DAOM and are conducting research, those few folks who are, and see what they would recommend. Most folks that I've, with whom I've spoken to, they're my dear friends, say, oh gosh, yeah, really the PhD is the way to go. Because that's, again, the street cred. Before I had my PhD, I had a Macomb. Nobody knew what that was. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, you kind of got to be a member of the club if you want to go mucking with the structure of the club. Totally. In a way. Truly, without question. And, you know, again, I spent four years, uh, I think the national average is five to six, depends on which department you go into to do your PhD. But at any rate, it was four years full-time study with, again, a whole year of biostatistics, another year of more in-depth statistical modeling, and then all the methods courses, and then dissertation time. It's, it's not a minor <laughs> project. You had to really love research to get through all that kind of stuff uh -huh. so that you could get to the place where you are now. Yeah, I do. Honestly, I have to say I'm the happiest scientific unicorn around because this is what I wanted to do 20 years ago. And I was too chicken. I didn't. I didn't think because, again, I thought nonlinearly, whatever, and that was in psychology back then. And 
I thought, oh my gosh, to make it and to be to get a job for one and then to make tenure for two, thinking in this way, I I was not ready for the challenge. So long story short, I went into clinical training. I always wanted to be a clinician too. And I missed research. I had to come back. And so now I have the job that I always wanted. I feel so lucky. Sometimes it takes us a super long and incredibly circuitous path to get to the thing that we really wanted to go toward. And, and, and I don't think that's necessarily wrong. I used to think that was wrong. Oh, God, what a mess. Look at, look at the crazy path I had to take to get here. But without that circuitous path, you would not have gone into Chinese medicine. You would have not understood the deep way that the medicine is connective with all this complexity that you're talking about. And my suspicion is the path you that you've followed deeply informs the work that you do. Without question. And that includes mentoring. I'm a very passionate advocate for uh, mentoring because I've had such great mentors over the years. So I presently mentor students at other acupuncture schools. I mentor graduate and undergraduate students here. I even, you know, my own children, I talk with them about try not to think you need to know now what you're going to do. They're in middle and high school. I try to encourage the gift of that circuitous journey. Ah, the gift of the circuitous journey. Mm-hmm. Because you know what I found, Michael? It The word came when you and I were, I think we were on the telephone, not in a podcast, but I never would have understood the profound, sacred nature of clinical practice. As sacred is the word that I found when I was talking with you. You probably remember that conversation. Uh, I, 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 have, I have goosebumps as we speak because I do remember it. And it because it's so... It's not something that I speak about very much, but that very much informs how I go into my day. Me too. Oh, I, absolutely. I, now I've announced it to the world. Sorry, but <laughs> with this podcast, <laughs> but I only use that word judiciously as well, because typically people quickly move from sacred to to religious or dogmatic or some other something else. But but truly, that sacred aspect of clinical practice, that is the well that nourishes us, right, as clinicians, that's missing in the six-minute consult. And research, of course, we're never going to get to sacred, I don't think, in research. But once in a while, I get kind of close, and that's when it's really fun. I always enjoy the time that we spend together. I can't believe that time has flown by the way it has. Actually, I can believe time has flown by the way it has. It always does. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> Any Anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners before we uh, wind it down for this time? Well, it sounds maybe kind of like Pollyanna approach or something, but I truly, deeply, deeply believe that when each person does what they want to do and shines their light in the world in the way that is uniquely theirs, that is the gift they can give the give our world. So I think for your listeners who either are thinking about research or are maybe like a moth drawn to the flame, that's um, certainly been the case for me at times, to consider, you know, how might they engage in whatever way feeds them in the way that is most nourishing? Because that's, again, I think when we can each be of the best service to those around us. Wonderful. Thanks, my friend. I look forward to our next conversation. Me too. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode of Geological. If you've listened this far in, clearly you're a hashtag Geological nerd. So 
For you diehards, I have a small ask that will take three minutes of your time. I've had a lot of feedback on postcards, in my email, and in conversations in person. And what I'm hearing is that y'all appreciate Geological because you feel more connected to our Chinese medicine community and to the medicine itself. This makes me really curious because there's all these different ways that we have of being connected today. There's Facebook, there's Instagram, various chat groups, text your friends, along with the more traditional methods of books, you know, and some really fine journals. I mean, our human spheres of interconnection have never been as rich and varied as they are right now. So it raises the question in my mind, how is it that geological is somehow different from the multitude of other methods that we have to be connected? I'd really love to hear from you on this. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm -hmm.